Hello, everyone. Hi, Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Miles. Good. So I have a really important question to ask you. Um, I have reached like Theodore Roosevelt levels of coffee consumption. Like I read once that he used to drink like a gallon of coffee a day. I'm wondering if you're at that level and how do we dial it back? <laughs> uh, I drink probably four cups of coffee a day or more, but um, some of them are decaf. But I've I've done that for many years, uh, and I guess it's probably bad for me. But um, you know that's that's just the way I operate. So. <laughs> Same here. I love coffee. What can I say? 2022 is where we're starting. It was a great year for incumbents and a lot of things mattered, as you noted in the crystal ball this week, um, ranging from candidate quality, redistricting, abortion rights, and democracy being on the ballot uh, in some states. Um, I want to start by talking about how you all assessed the 2022 election and why Republicans didn't do as well as you expected them to in an election that historically pointed to their advantage? You know, I would say that the sort of the overall kind of, you know, this is still being calculated, but it certainly seems like it was a Republican-leaning electorate and seems like the overall kind of House results point to, you know, Republican advantage in the House popular vote. Of course, Democrats won the House popular vote by about three points when you adjust for everything for uh, uncontested races and that sort of thing in, in, in 2020. And so there was a shift to the right it's just that it was unevenly felt. And I think the voters, as we've you know, written in the aftermath here, the voters made some pretty sophisticated choices um, in that the, you know, the Republicans put up kind of some weak candidates in a lot of places and that you know, didn't really work out for them. I do kind of wonder, too, about the impact of um, candidate fundraising. Um, Democrats, particularly Democratic incumbents, really did great on that front. I think it allowed them to maybe run the kind of campaigns they wanted and also to um, get the messages out that they wanted. I mean, obviously there was a ton of outside spending from, you know, from non-candidates. Um, but I do sometimes think that the, the, the spending by the candidates themselves maybe makes more of a difference. So that might be a part of it too, that maybe we saw that, that really mattered in a lot of these close, uh, swing district and, and, and Senate races. Uh, Miles, I don't know if you have anything to add, you want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sort of on that, it was sort of an odd dynamic this year where you had a lot of deep blue states like New York, uh, California, Illinois, where Democrats did, you know, not as well as I would expect in statewide races. But it was a lot of those marginal states like Pennsylvania, Michigan that really did well for Democrats. So like as you were saying, it was a really uneven dynamic this year. So, Miles, you just raised uh, New York as as one of the deep blue states, and we actually had a question come in from a listener specific to New York uh, that's, you know, for Miles or both of you. Um, why was the crime issue so salient in New York when in other states the issue wasn't quite as effective uh, uh, for, the, for the GOP? Um, yeah, I, I have some thoughts about that. You know, first of all, it was interesting. I was just um, we just heard from one of our Democratic contacts kind of bemoaning this this morning about how um, and this is something we I wrote about before the election that is interesting that, that uh, Kathy Hochul uh, showed up in a lot of Republican attack ads. And it's, it's you know, you you expect to see like Biden and Pelosi and, you know, in, in ads and whatnot, or maybe even like Trump and Democratic ads or something like that. But um, there was a lot of Hochul in the New York, uh, the New York state races um, and uh, uh, I think it, it showed that Republicans really thought that she was weak in a lot of these key um, swing districts. 
Um, and I also th just think that, that there actually were real policy kind of disagreements in New York State about about criminal justice matters, specifically related related to um, ending cash bail in 2019, which, again, whatever you think about that, maybe it made the, the crime issue a little bit more salient um, because there was an actual like policy change that Republicans could point to as opposed to just sort of a more um, generic attack. Um, by the way, this is going to be probably a, I don't know, controversial or charged opinion, but um, you know, Andrew Cuomo resigned and resigned for good reason, frankly, has made a lot of, a lot of behavior that was indefensible that he did and um, with you know, sexual harassment and other things. And so I'm not trying to defend Andrew Cuomo in any sort of way. Um, but I, I did have heard from, you know, a few Democrats that would think that like, you know, if Cuomo had been the nominee um, and, you know, if he'd been able to sort of survive um, you know, would he have been sort of a more energetic campaigner and run a better campaign than Hochul did, maybe won by a bigger margin? I mean, for all of Cuomo's problems, um, his worst margin was 14 points in 2014. It looks like the margin in the governor's race this time is, is a little less than six points. Um, you know, could he have provided more of a lift if, first of all, if he hadn't done all sorts of stupid and bad things in office? Um but also, you know, just just again, if he had, if 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 he had uh, uh, again not made those mistakes and he had ended up running for a fourth term, could he have provided some of the lift that, that maybe Hochul didn't provide? It's sort of what you know. There's all sorts of what ifs in an election, particularly when the 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 outcomes in the House and the Senate are so close. But that's just sort of a kind of an interesting one to think about. So as we're talking, it looks it's likely that the Republicans are going to win by a pretty small margin with, you know, maybe just as as few as the 218 seats they have as of now. What does divided government but narrow control of the House mean for governance? One thing, interesting thing about the, the new Republican conference is that not only do you have these sort of hardliner members like a Matt Gates or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or some others, but you know you are going to have these new members from uh, New York and also some some reelected members from from California and some other places who you know do represent districts that Joe Biden won and we've got a you know presidential election coming up here. They may want to try to demonstrate some ways in which maybe they differ from the national party, and you know there's there aren't going to be you know one of the things that in this 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 outgoing Congress is that because the, the Democrats House majority was so small. Leadership didn't have a lot of hall passes to hand out on certain things to, you know, to let members from tough districts, you know, vote against leadership on certain things. You know, when you've only when you only win 222 seats, you just you don't have that kind of leeway. Um, and, and the Republicans are going to be in the same boat in which they're going to be wanting to try to do some things, um, pass a lot of legislation that may just be kind of more like messaging legislation than actually getting it passed, because a lot of those things will just die in the Senate. Um, but in order to pass those things, they're going to need a high degree of, of party unity. And while, you know, the, certainly the, the both the Republican and Democratic caucuses are not nearly as ideologically diverse as, as they were, you know, a generation or two ago, there is still some diversity there, ideologically speaking. And you're going to have members who are... Um, um, who are really concerned about re-election in general election sense, maybe concerned about re-election in primary sense. And so they're going to be coming at this from different, different angles. We are going to have a piece after the Thanksgiving break on uh, how especially um, incumbent members of the House who are election deniers won and, and making the case that uh, the big lie is rooted and not routed. Um, so look out for that as we dig in more, especially on the far right. Um, Kyle, I don't, Kyle and Miles, I don't know if you saw this, but you know, there's been some talk with the far from the far right about 
even potentially making Donald Trump uh, Speaker of the House. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but um, you know that it's at least perhaps gives us a sense of you know what they what they might try to do in this new governing coalition where they seem to have more power. You know, McCarthy, it's not clear that he has the votes to be speaker. And so, you know, do I think that there's going to be like a non-member as speaker, which is technically allowed, but I don't think has ever happened. You know, I don't really think that. Um, But maybe there ends up being someone else as the speaker, depending on how large um, the majority is and how well McCarthy can keep things together. But, you know, he doesn't have that many votes to spare. And there already are some members who are indicating he's not, they're not going to support McCarthy or they, they want uh, changes to essentially empower rank and file members over leadership. Um, so this is an, you know, an ongoing story. We have another listener question. Um, will the California House results reflect badly on Newsom? Uh, quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, and, and, uh, um, you know, we keep focusing, be focused on New York in part because, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the results are so bad for them there, but as we're getting the California results, um, the, the, uh, you know, Democrats don't seem like they did all that great out there. Yeah. I mean, aside from, uh, you know, aside from Katie Porter and, um, and Mike Levin, it looks like the Republicans may do well in the um, marginal seats in California. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the themes of this election. It seemed like, you know, when you had a strong uh, governor Lee in the top of the, the ticket, that made that an impact. You know, uh, I think Newsom for most of the election was campaigning for some of his referendums, if I remember correctly, you know, instead of actual candidates. Let's talk about the polls. Um, you you had a, a good overview of the polls in Crystal Ball this week in your reflection, um, but I especially wanted to talk with you and get your take about the Republican-friendly pollster strategy to game the polls this season, um, especially in the key races like the Pennsylvania Senate race. And you know the point of it was to really get the media narrative to focus on candidates um, looking like they were more ahead than they actually were. Um, I, I don't know that this phenomenon is broadly understood, and it could especially be problematic in future elections if either side wants to manipulate media narratives to unwitting journalists who don't exclude partisan polls in their analyses of the horse race. It certainly seems like there were a lot of uh, kind of polls from not necessarily Republican internal polls. You know, I've seen that construction used sometimes, and and you know, like you know, Trafalgar. I mean, yeah, I think they do do. Uh, some polls for clients, but I think a lot of what they produce is not necessarily for clients. And so they're not an internal poll in the sense that, you know, like a campaign isn't necessarily releasing them like the way you see, you know, Democratic or Republican campaigns release polls to try to shape the narrative of, of a race or maybe try to try to argue that they're doing, you know, better than than what the other polls say or, or, or what have you. Um, I don't know exactly why there were so many of these kinds of polls and, you know, they, they did overstate Republicans in many sense, in, in much of a sense. You know, and I also don't necessarily know if that has any effect on actual voter behavior. And in fact, I almost wonder sometimes if, 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 if people feel like they're underdogs, maybe that actually makes them, that that actually has that sort of like a, sort of a, a galvanizing, galvanizing effect, effect on them. On them. Or, uh, or, 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 or something like that, um, because, because again, like it wasn't like in 2016 that, you know, um, you know, Donald Trump was seen as the underdog the whole time. Did that hurt him? I mean, pretty clearly it didn't. And in fact, I remember hearing after the election, you know, again, this is all just anecdotal, but like 
you know, people saying, oh, I wish I would have voted because I thought I thought Clinton was going to win or something like that. So I, I just I don't know. I, like, it, it's clear that a lot of these Republican polls did sort of inflate polling performances for Republicans. But what to what end? I don't, that's what I don't, that's what I don't really understand about that. Uh, more broadly, Kyle, how do you think the major pollsters did? And was it a fluke that the polls were generally on target this year? Or do you think that polling challenges from 2016 and 2020 have been resolved? Um, some of the kind of, I'd say, kind of like old school gold standard pollsters seem like had a pretty good, pretty good election. Um, you know, like Marist put out some polls right um, several days before the election that ended up being pretty good. in I think it was like Pennsylvania and Arizona um, and it, maybe, maybe maybe one other state. Um, and uh, um, uh, the New York Times uh, uh, polling with uh, Siena was also very good. Um, they put out some house polls. Um, also a few Senate polls and those ended up being on point. Um, but the, the thing that I found confusing before the election was that I just didn't know necessarily how much to, to trust those numbers, um, given that some of those same polls that sort of overstated, uh, Democrats in, in 2020. So, you know, I, I certainly tip my cap to them for doing, for, you know, for having a really good election. Um, and I, I always try to say this, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the polls that we do get because, you know, so many of us, we, we, we're not paying for polls ourselves, but we consume a lot of polls and we want to have as many out there um, as possible. Um, I guess the, the question is, is like, you know, looming for 2024, like, is there a kind of a presidential voting block that is more Republican leaning that polls maybe aren't picking up on that maybe helps explain like what happened in 2016 and, and, and 2020. So, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily predict polling error from election to election and you can't necessarily assume that some of the polls that did well in 2022 or those that did poorly in 2022, that their record will end up being the same, the same in, in, uh, in, 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 in 2024. Yeah. It's like, I feel we're, I feel like we're always fighting yesterday's bout to some extent here where, you know, it's been, you know, it was basically the Republicans who were undersold in the polls from 2020 and 2016, you know, it didn't seem like there was a big error maybe in favor of Democrats since 2012. And, you know, Obama had a pretty comfortable win that year anyway, so it, it was less noticeable. We're already looking forward to 2024. Can you talk about how challenging the, the Senate map is for for? Can you talk about how challenging, challenging the 2024, 2024 Senate, Senate map, map is, is for Democrats, Democrats and what the Georgia runoff will mean for 2024? Yeah, so the Democrats are, as we've talked about about a lot on here, uh, as the Democrats, so as the Democrats look forward to 2024, you know, they are defending something like uh, two thirds of the seats that are up. Um, and it's it's um, it's going to be a very tough map for that. Them, oh, yeah, you know, this class was last up in 2018. Before that, it was up in 2012, and even before that, it was up in 06. Uh, so you know, basically, point being, the Democrats in this class have had you know sort of a politically charmed life. Um, and you know what could hurt the Democrats in 2020 and 24, as we pointed out in the, 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 the crystal ball, uh, I think the other day, uh, was that you know, this is something that's really disappointing to me as someone who likes to study, uh, you know, you know uh, basically trends and split ticket vote voting. Uh, in 2016 and 2020, Susan Collins in Maine was the only senator 
who won in a state that went the other way for president. You know, so if that same type of dynamic materializes uh, in 2024, um, that's going to make life very hard for people like Joe Manchin and John Tester um, and, San San and Senator Brown in Ohio. Um, you know, why Georgia is going to be so important um, is, you know, if the Democrats can win that Georgia race, you know, going into a tough cycle in 2024, it's going to give them a bit more of a cushion. Are there any patterns that emerged from Democratic gains on the state level? And how is this going to matter for 2024? So right now, uh, as of now, Democrats gained one governorship. They picked up Maryland and Massachusetts, but lost Nevada. Um, the gubernatorial race in Arizona has been called has been called for for Katie Hobbs. But Carrie Lake this morning said, you know, she tweeted, quote unquote, we're still in the fight uh, with a video. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what the state level patterns looked like. A lot of whining these days from people who end up losing elections. But although, you know, I will say um, that. I think it's totally legitimate for candidates to, you know, pursue recounts when they th when they're eligible to do that. Um, we just apparently had a recount in the New Hampshire House yesterday in which the recount resulted in a tie in one of the, the state house races there, and that chamber is very closely contested. So I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work out, but you know, it's totally okay to to uh, you know pursue legal means to uh, question the results. It's just that there's been so much um, so much stuff that again amounts to whining, and and again, I think that. Trump and, you know, what what some of his candidates have said after 2020, I think, basically amounts to that, you know, just just, you know, not really making an argument about, uh, you know, legitimate criticisms of the election pro process, just sort of spreading, you know, basically lies about about what happened. But, you know, look, the Arizona governor's race is really close. I think the margin is a little less than a point at this point. Um, but, you know, that's still a lot of votes. You know, we're not talking necessarily about like Florida in 2000, where it ended up being like, you know, 530, 37 votes or something. And, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a huge state. Um, but as for some of the trends, you know, I think it, it is, you know, I think you do continue to see this sort of suburban growth for, um, for Democrats. There is, there were some signs you could see of, of, uh, you know, uh, Latinos in certain places, maybe moving a little bit more toward the Republicans. You know, you particularly saw some kind of bad performances for Democrats and like some pretty safe, House seats, and so it didn't cause any of them to lose. But um, you know, you saw some underperformances in places like Florida and um, maybe some places in California. Although um, let, let's let's wait and see what, what we get in terms of the uh, the final um, results in, in in those states. But a lot of continuations of the of the trends we've we've previously seen. Um, you know, Michigan um, sort of stands out to me as this real bright spot for Democrats, and I think maybe the. The salience of the abortion issue and the weakness of the Republican ticket there, I think those are those are all key factors. But, you know, you can I think we talked about this last week. Um, you know, you continue to see Democratic growth in some places that are growing um, and, you know, decent population sizes that have been trending Democratic in recent years, uh, specifically the the uh, the, the, the uh, Grand Rapids area. Um, you know, at the same time, you saw some of the trends we've seen going the other way continue, uh, you know, in Ohio. Tim Ryan did a little bit better than Biden did in the Senate race there, but um, his congressional district uh, contains a uh, you know, Youngstown Warren area, and he actually lost both Trumbull and Mahoning counties, which are um, historically very Democratic, but have become uh, have definitely been been moving to the right um, in, uh, in 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 recent years. And you also saw, despite 
I think a pretty bad performance across the Midwestern region um, for Republicans. Uh, you know, there was some buzz about um, uh, Democrats being able to compete for Iowa's first and second congressional districts in Eastern Iowa, which Democrats won in 2018, then lost in 2020, and then they were they were redrawn um, in 2022. But I was just going over the results, and those races did not not end up being that close. The uh, um, Republicans won, I think, by uh, mid to high single digits in both of those. They also flipped um, Iowa's third congressional district in a, in a very close um, race, and so you know Ohio and Iowa are the two kind of midwestern states that used to be really competitive and now seem to be moving more toward the Republicans. And certainly nothing we saw um, last week, I think, would sort of move you off the notion that those states are moving into becoming more Republican. And sort of one state I was looking at uh, last uh, uh, last night was one of the sort of bright spots for Democrats in the Senate was uh, – well, it was basically when you had Catherine Cortez Masso uh, uh, holding on. And, and I was looking at her race. You know, she only won Clark County, which is Las Vegas, by seven or eight points. Uh, sort of traditionally, that's the thinking has been at least over the last decade or so. Okay, well, if a Democrat needs to win in no, Nevada, they have to, to you know win Clark by close to 10 points. Uh, but what really helped her is um, uh, it looks like her gains in uh, Wab, uh, her gains in Washington County, which is Reno. Um, she about matched Biden there. Um, so you know this is um, that this is something I like to, 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 to say. But uh, I think John Ralston was on a podcast last year, and he said like like well uh, you know they, they, this isn't your grandfather's Washoe anymore. You know, I was Miles. It's funny you say that. I was just looking at the governor's results this morning in Nevada, and Steve Sisolak lost, but he did carry Washoe County, but he just didn't he just do well didn't enough do well in, in Clark to actually win. Um, and it, it, it speaks to um, you know some some changes in in Nevada, but you know under trying circumstances, the fact that you know Cortez Masto got over the line, and and, and so did the the three vulnerable Democratic House members there. Um, you know, it does sort of the sort of the enduring, I think, strength of. Uh, um, you know, the Democratic organizational efforts um, out in out in Nevada. But, you know, the, the, the races were slim enough that, you know, certainly you expect the state to be competitive again, real competitive again for president. They've got a Senate race out there, too, um, with Jackie Rosen, Democrat running for reelection and those three House seats. And so Nevada is going to be um, at the center of things again uh, in 2024. A couple of things that might be worth pointing out here, too, just in terms of the governorships. There's a record 12 women who are set to serve as governors now, including the first two lesbian governors, um, Maura Healy in Massachusetts and and uh, Tina Kotek in, in Oregon. And I think another thing, you know, that we should consider in sort of these state level results is the record number of LGBTQIA plus candidates over 430 um, one at um, state level, including those in the gubernatorial races. Um, so I think important trends. And then Kyle, you mentioned something about uh, Democrats making gains in suburban areas. And I think there too, it's important to note um, how changing demographics in the suburbs might be driving that, um, especially as we're seeing um, uh, more black Americans and uh, uh, immigrants moving to suburban areas because of the high cost of living in cities. 
I was just I, I was just going to say very quickly on that one thing I noticed about some of the South suburbs is uh, even though Stacey Abrams lost by a pretty clear margin to Governor Kemp, uh, in some of the counties around Metro Atlanta, she still improved from uh, uh, from last time in 2018, which I think speaks to some of the movement there as well. Yeah, I think uh, Atlanta is a great example of, uh, or the you know, Metro Atlanta is a great example of how that how, how that's sort of changing the politics in some of these uh, some of these states because you not only have just such tremendous growth in Atlanta overall, but it's it's growth that's that's also extremely diverse, um, and that you know I think like North, I think you'd say the same thing about like Northern Virginia, which has sort of pushed Virginia into becoming more of a kind of a blue leaning state, still still competitive, still you know Republicans can still win under the right circumstance. We saw. The governor's race last year, but um, you know you have these giant kind of population magnets that are you know pretty highly educated, pretty high, pretty highly diverse, and you know that's helpful for um, for Democrats. You know, one other interesting trend is that I noticed that like in Pennsylvania, where of course Democrats did great overall, but um, you know they underperformed a little bit in Philadelphia, but they more than made up for it by you know continuing to improve in the suburbs and also um, in a lot of the kind of pretty Republican rural counties, you know, the, the margins were just not matching what, like, you know, what Donald Trump achieved too. So there was a kind of a broad based improvement for Democrats in, um, in the state. Um, even though, you know, you, you think of, you know, Philadelphia, so the vote engine for Democrats in that state, which, which certainly is, and was continued to be in this election. It's just that some of the, the actual improvement is really coming in, in other parts of the state, um, which, you know, it's, in some ways there, you see this sort of like, um, a slight reduction in this sort of like urban versus rural split, even though, you know, obviously the, the, the results in, um, in big cities and rural areas are, are still, there's still a huge chasm um, between those two kinds of places. So we have a listener question on um, on abortion rights. And just as before I specifically get to that, I want to call out our colleague, Lou Jacobson, friend of the center. Lou Jacobson has a piece out for Crystal Ball today that looks at the state level races uh, that the Crystal Ball does not rate. So I want to encourage everyone to, to read that. And he also does address um, uh, abortion in that. Um, it's really interesting. Um, friend of the center, friend of the Crystal Ball, Grace Panetta, also has a piece out on on ballot initiatives. Um, and she notes that, you know, there was just a really overwhelming um, uh, rejection of the Dobbs decision. If you look at how those ballot initiatives performed, um, so voters in two states rejected anti-abortion ballot measures that would have made the procedure more difficult. Um, and and um, in, in those anti, um, and those more people voted for winning Republican politicians in those states than for the anti-abortion ballot measures. Um, so just wanted to highlight that piece as well. Our listener question is, do you think there will be more abortion rights initiatives in 2023 to 2024? Um, and how do you explain how governors like Mike DeWine, who signed abortion restrictions, won re-election? Oh, I was just going to say uh, kind of uh, quickly, I got a comment the other day. Well, you know, is there any way that Democrats could put abortion referendums on the ballot in 2024 in Montana and Ohio to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to basically save Tester and Brown? Uh, but yeah, it was sort of an, uh, the ticket splitting this year was sort of an counterintuitive, I would say, and then, and then that, 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 Okay, well, you have you know someone like Brian Kemp who's pro-life, 
uh, run way ahead of Walker. And so it was uh, definitely an odd uh, dynamic this year. Yeah, I was just going to add that, um, uh, you know, it, it seems like abortion was important in a lot of places, but wasn't necessarily the only thing that people were deciding on because a lot of the you know, red state incumbent governors um, did great, did better than Trump did in 2020. And a number of those um, governors, as, as Lou Jacobson notes in today's piece, you know, they um, either instituted uh, new abortion restrictions or sort of oversaw the institution of trigger laws and that sort of thing. Um, at the same time, you had five, uh, I think it was five or six um, abortion related issues um, at statewide level in states as varied as Vermont and California, all the way to like Kentucky and the pro-abortion rights side won on all of those. I thought it was kind of interesting that there was a, there was a piece and I, I, I just can't remember where I saw it yesterday. I remember in Vox, but um, it was an interview with some of the, the folks who have been working on um, um, pro-abortion rights ballot issues. And they, they're concerned that they don't want the abortion rights fight to necessarily be fought on sort of partisanized lines because it might make it harder for them to attract the kind of crossover vote they they would want. Thought it was interesting that you know in Michigan, um, Gretchen Whitmer probably did a little bit better than I thought she would do, and the abortion ballot issue did a little bit worse than I thought it would do. I think I think Whitmer got like fifty four or fifty five percent of the vote, and the abortion issue only got like fifty seven. Um, I thought there would have been sort of more crossover there, but but you know the the abortion vote probably did become and that issue probably did become partisanized to a, to a large degree in a way that maybe it wasn't in like Kansas, that, uh, which um, passed by a pretty big margin um, in the primary um, and probably attracted more crossover from Republicans than maybe the one in, in, uh, in, in Michigan did. And so I guess maybe the danger for the uh, abortion rights supporters would be that if they do put ballot issues on in Ohio and Montana, which, you know, in other places where, you're, you're able to do sort of citizen initiated, you know, ballot issues. Does it, you know, if you do that in November, 2024, does that actually make it harder to get the thing passed? Because voters who may be voting Republican for president may sort of get partisanized on that, on that issue. Um, I, again, you know, I don't necessarily know if that, that would happen or not, but it is something to consider as I think Democrats think about using um, the abortion rights ballot measures, not just as a way to try to secure abortion rights in, in a given state, but also as some sort of uh, turnout mechanism for, uh, you know, presidential slash Senate cycle. Um, and, you know, maybe if you do that, maybe you run the risk of actually losing on the ballot issue in addition to, you know, losing the, 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 the Senate and presidential race in a given state. So just, some, you know, kind of a strategic, strategic food for thought. Okay, so we have breaking news, which we were anticipating this morning uh, just happened. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says that she won't run for leadership in the next Congress, um, ending two decades as the Democratic leader. Um, I saw a calculation this morning. Um, she's collected more than $1.25 billion for Democrats during her last two decades of leadership, which is pretty astounding. Um, what are your thoughts on where Democratic leadership is headed and how might Speaker Pelosi's announcement uh, affect governance. Well, this is something Professor Sabato was joking with us earlier today. He's like, "Well, you know, it's almost a, it's, it's almost a good thing because the Democratic leadership looks like a nursing home. <laughs> you know, it's nothing against them, but uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I think for Pelosi, she is, you know, she's at least ending on somewhat of a high note." Uh, she very much beat expectations in this last uh, election. Um, you know that's 
sad. It's going to be hard to replace her as a fundraiser, um, and um, um, and it's it's hard to beat her in terms of whipping votes as well. You know, we talk about the Republican, whoever the Republican speaker ends up being, Kevin McCarthy or somebody else. Um, all the challenges they'll have in vote counting. You know, it's, the Democrats had a very similar, um, similarly sized House majority in last Congress, and uh, didn't really didn't end up being much of a problem. I think in part because of just the effectiveness of Pelosi as as a speaker and as a as a vote counter. I think whatever you think of her um, and whether you agree with her policies or not. Um, I think she goes down to one of the great as one of the great speakers of all time and one of the great legislative leaders of all time. And certainly she's been um, around in leadership for, um, for for quite a while. But I think she ranks right up there with, um, you know, some of the, the kind of legendary, um, you know, Democratic uh, House speakers. And I, th- I guess one of the first ones that comes to mind is Sam Rayburn, but, um, you know, others uh, across the sweep of history. So, you know, this is just kind of an important and interesting historical moment. Um, I do think that, you know, the, the Democrats have um, they're very much backlogged with this sort of these sort of older leaders, um, certainly put Biden in that group. Um, Pelosi is part of that group. You know, Steny Hoyer, who I guess may or may not try to compete to become the leader of the leader of the um, the, the Democratic caucus. It seems kind of sounded like from just reporting I saw this morning that Hakeem Jeffries may be sort of next in line um, for this job. And I, I think it probably is time for some um for, for some for some new blood, um, this is probably the right time for Pelosi to leave. It kind of sounds like she's going to hang around at least for a little bit and sort of this like emeritus role. Um, you know, it's like in The Godfather. You know, the the, the Don is semi retired, <laughs> but he's but he's still around and still around to give advice. Advice and, and uh, whoever the Democratic leader is, I think would probably be wise to take Pelosi's advice on things because again, I think she's she's pretty shrewd on on a lot of this stuff. So one final question for today. I don't want to give Donald Trump too much of a platform, uh, but he did announce he was running for president this week. Uh, what is your current thinking on his candidacy? You know, this is a point that um, I was listening to a talk last year by um, by Michael Burr Brown, who's the author of the Almanac of American Politics. Um, and I thought, you know, this is very much a historical thing, but he's like, well, Republicans or at least Republican presidents, when they have been in office, their party has been very supportive of them. But when they've tried to come back, it's been harder. Uh, he used the example of, I think it was, uh, I think it was a Dulles, a Grant who tried to come back for a third term in 18, uh, 1880, did not make it past the convention. Uh, even uh, even someone like a Teddy Roosevelt, who who was as, about as popular a president as ever when he was in office, uh, tries to come back in 1912, doesn't uh, get the Republican nomination, has to run as a third party. Um, so it's almost like you know I'm interested to see if that type of dynamic materializes as, as again you know almost a hundred over a hundred years later. Uh, but it did seem that Trump's announcement the other night did lack some, you know, it, it, um, I mean, in his words, it almost seemed a little low energy. Um, you know, Trump, I think, is still pretty well liked on the Republican side. Um, also, the, the the nominating rules on the Republican side really do benefit plurality winners. And, and we saw that with Trump in 2016 and that he was not necessarily getting majorities in the early states, but he was winning and therefore getting sort of the, the lion's share of the delegates. 
And so the thing that could actually help Trump is if there's sort of a big field against him. Um, I see some vulnerability there, um, but I also think you have to, you know, it's dangerous to um, to underestimate Trump because he, um, you know, the guy just keeps coming back when you think he might be um, when you think he might be finished. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I think will be interesting to watch in a, you know, in a hypothetical primary situation with with Trump and DeSantis is that. I could really imagine DeSantis kind of becoming sort of the candidate of people who didn't necessarily love Trump in the first place, specifically kind of the like, uh, I don't know, like kind of like the National Review crowd. I mean, they, they kind of came out recently and just said no to, you know, no to Trump. Um, and maybe um, some Republicans, particularly uh, Republicans with four-year college degrees, maybe the white collar group. But the thing is, in a you know, this primary setting, you know, the, the sort of blue collar um, base of the Republican Party is still, I think, st- think still holds sway in a lot of places. And if it turns into this kind of, um, you know, this this term is often used on the Democratic side, but maybe you could apply it on the Republican side here, this um, wine track versus beer track. And hypothetically, you could see DeSantis as being the wine track candidate and Trump as being the beer track candidate. Um, and I think in the Republican Party today, you might rather be the beer truck track candidate. So, um, you know, I think we underestimate Trump um, at, at our at our peril. Um, but, yeah, I think there is also some weakness there that maybe was not present. Um, well, certainly in 2020, anyway, when he was when he, he won renomination without really any any real opposition. Well, Kyle and Miles, thank you so much for all of you tuning in. Thank you for joining us. We'll be taking a break next week for the holidays, but look forward to returning to our discussions and podcast after Thanksgiving. Thank you all. Thanks, everybody.